Hello, everybody. It's good to be able to talk to you again. You know, it's been, oh my goodness, a couple of months, almost three months since I uh, had the opportunity to, to speak. I asked for a few weeks off, and, uh, but it's, it feels like, holy cow, it's been a long time to be off. So it's good to have the chance to be standing and sharing with you again. You know, uh, I love this series we're in called Remedy, How the Cross Changes Things. You know, one of the most verifiable facts of ancient history is that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. But Jesus transformed the cross. Uh, we've been talking about this in, in this series where uh, the Apostle Paul, in fact, there's kind of a theme verse from the book of Galatians that Pastor Shane read last week where, where Paul says in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really strange because honestly, in Paul's day, uh, the cross was, was something that was awful. In fact, uh, you know, Jesus completely transformed the whole idea of the cross. Today, the cross is a symbol of hope to us. It's a symbol of love to us. But in the time of Jesus and in Paul's day, the cross was such a heinous thing, the subject would never come up in polite culture in the Roman Empire. In fact, the cross death was so painful and it was so torturous that it was considered to be beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to be put to death on the cross. But Jesus of Nazareth changed what the cross is all about. And because he transformed its meaning, frankly, the cross now can transform our lives. So we've been looking at different ways that the cross makes the difference and changes things in our life. And today, I want to talk to you about where to drop your load of guilt. Because definitely, the cross is a place where God says, you can drop that load of guilt that you're handling. In fact, in my small group this last week, we were talking about the fact that I'd be preaching this week and somebody asked, what are you going to talk on? And I said, well, I'm preaching on, on guilt and, and uh, tying it to the, to the cross. And one of our group members, Mike Hurley, said, oh, yeah, man, gosh, the, the cross, that's a guilt buster. And I want to tell you that it is a guilt buster. And I want to start by uh, just looking at Romans chapter 5 and... Um, it's, this is on your notes, and uh, you can see this where the Apostle Paul says these words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, there's that word again, boast in the hope of the glory of God. He goes on in verse 6 to say, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved 
through his life. And not only this, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, the Apostle Paul says that it's the cross of Christ that makes such a difference. And I want to talk to you today specifically about how you can drop the load of guilt that you carry in your life. You know, there's some people because of guilt, uh, we, we uh, you know, they, they kind of live, it, like the other day I was driving down Herndon and a person was driving with their foot on the brake. Isn't that frustrating when uh, you come up behind somebody and their brake lights are on and you just realize they drive with their foot on the brake. And there's some people, they're, they're living their lives with their foot on the brake, not allowing themselves to really be free and to go because of guilt. Some people live waiting for the other shoe to drop in their life or, or listening for the rattling of a skeleton that's going to come out of a closet somewhere. Or they live constantly rerunning failures in their life. I want to talk to you about how to get beyond that. See, the fact is we all have an uneasy relationship with guilt in our life. We all experience it. And, uh, and that's because God has given us a conscience that frankly can, can be both a blessing and a curse to us. In fact, Mark, Tra- Mark Twain once said that an uneasy conscience is like a hair in the mouth. What a great word picture that is. In fact, Mark Twain didn't like the whole idea of how his conscience felt. In fact, in one of his characters, Huck Finn says, uh, it don't make no difference whether you do right or wrong. A person's conscience ain't got no sense and just goes for him anyway. You ever feel like that? That your conscience just goes for you and tries to pull you down? And then Huck goes on to say, conscience takes up more room than all the rest of a person's insides and yet ain't no good, no how. Well, most of us don't like dealing with guilt. We don't like dealing with our with our consciences. Some people try to ignore their conscience and, and the sense of guilt. Some people actually just despise the whole idea with guilt and say, I, I don't need to feel guilty about anything. I'll never forget when I lived in, in Orange County years ago, uh, driving behind a guy in a Jaguar and, and he, had a, he had a bumper sticker on his car that just said, screw guilt. And you know, there's a lot of people who feel that way And they don't want to carry any guilt. In fact, there would be people who'd say, I never have any guilt in my life. Now, frankly, some people have a clear conscience because they have a short memory. And so let's talk about how we deal with our guilt. First of all, I think it's helpful to distinguish real from false guilt. And uh, I want to say that there is real guilt and there's, there's false guilt because our consciences, frankly, are not a reliable guide because we've all been broken and distorted by sin. And so what do I mean by real from false guilt? Well, it's helpful, first of all, to to just look and understand uh, these two aspects of our guilt, objective guilt and subjective guilt. And you see some things that I've listed there. Objective guilt has to do with facts based on actual, my actions and my behaviors. I've, I've trespassed. Uh, I've exceeded a boundary in some way. I've violated a, a law. Uh, I've failed to do what I ought to do, some duty or responsibility. I've actually cheated or lied or stolen. And, and the thing about objective guilt is that it's resolvable. We can, we can correct it. 
We can pay for it. We can make amends for it. But then there's a subjective aspect to our guilt, and that has to do not with facts of things that we do, but the feelings we have because of the things we do. Now let me just say, basically we feel guilty because we are guilty. Every one of us has done the things that you see on that left side of the screen right there. We've, we've violated, we've exceeded. The Bible says there's not a perfect person on the whole earth that, that never sins and always does what is right. But sometimes our feelings can get really goofed up and can be distorted. And before we know it, we've begun to internalize in feelings of, of what we call shame. Uh, you know, a load of what one guy called a, a ton of just not good enoughness. And so we start feeling unworthy. You see these things here. And living with fear and feeling like we're disqualified from really being able to enjoy life. And see, the thing about subjective guilt as opposed to objective guilt is objective guilt is resolvable, but subjective guilt is sometimes just an unsettled kind of a thing because we carry it inside. Now the reality is there is sometimes that we're carrying feelings of guilt when we don't need to. In fact, sometimes there's guilt that's undeserved. I'll never forget a friend of mine when I lived in the California uh, Bay Area that uh, one day uh, in Vietnam, he had, he had stepped on a, a mine. He heard it click and uh, suddenly the platoon that was with him, they all scattered because they knew what was going to happen next. And once they were clear, he took his foot off because there was no other way to get off of that mine, knowing that it would be the end of his life. And for some reason, that mine didn't go off. And I remember him telling me about that story. And he said, Steve, why did I? Man, I had friends who were better people than me. And they had families at home. Why did they die and I didn't? See, that's called survivor's guilt. There are some who, who carry guilt, frankly, because of the ethnic group that they, lived, uh, they grew up in. Yet nothing to do with choosing that or the economic group that you lived in. And they, were, they lived in poverty. Or maybe their daddy was, a, was a, a, an alcoholic and abusive. Or maybe mama ran off with somebody. And you see, there are people who carry feelings of shame and guilt over those things. And they're really quite undeserved. So it's helpful to just distinguish real guilt from false guilt. And then you want to welcome guilt's positive purpose. There really is a positive purpose for our feeling guilt. I mean, God gave us a conscience in order that we would feel guilty when we've done things that are wrong. In fact, the only people who never feel any guilt are the worst narcissists and sociopathic personalities. Guilt is actually a good thing to feel, but it's a terrible load to carry. See, the whole purpose of guilt is to be able to ask ourselves, do I really want to act this way again in the future? Am I sure this is the way that I want to be living? That's why God wants us to, to feel guilt. It's so that we'll, you've heard us say this before, so that we'll turn from our guilt. That we'll learn from our guilt. Don't live this way in the future. In fact, that we can actually launch from that place of failure in our life to begin again with him in repentance and in a new way. And sometimes God will even let you lead out of a sense of failure. I think about Dave Ramsey, who's well known for 
you know, the Financial Peace University and, and teaching that he does to help people get debt free. And Dave Ramsey got to that place, though, out of, out of his own bankruptcy. And so what better person to help lead other people than somebody who's come out of a deep, deep failure? This last week, a friend named John Baker passed away suddenly, unexpectedly. John was one of the founders with Rick Warren of Celebrate Recovery. And what an incredible thing that John Baker, out of the wreckage of his own alcoholism, found sobriety and then founded a Christ-centered recovery program called Celebrate Recovery. See, God says guilt can be a good thing if it helps us to do the right thing about what we've done wrong. How do we get out from under that load? Because it is a load. You know, the famed psychiatrist Carl Menninger once made the comment that if he could just get his psychiatric patients in, in, in the psychiatric hospitals he visited, he said, if I could just convince them that they are really forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. And if you think that there isn't a load of guilt, just go back and read Psalm 51 at David as he expresses the pain and the load of guilt. You see, guilt is a good thing to be able to feel, but it's a terrible load to carry. And God says, I don't want you to carry it. So how do we get out from under the load of it? Let me give you some practical things. Number one, understand that God takes all real guilt seriously and personally. You're never going to get rid of your guilt by denying it, by trying to ignore it, by just despising it. In fact, God says real guilt must be addressed. God's never going to say that we're good if we're not good. And God takes it seriously. And by the way, he takes it personally. In fact, he says that every time we sin, it's really a sin against him, even if we do something against someone else. The Ten Commandments begin with the words, I am the Lord your God. Therefore, these are the things you shouldn't do toward me, you shouldn't do toward yourself, and you shouldn't do toward other people. But God begins by saying, just understand that I'm the Lord, and every sin you ever do, everything you're ever going to feel guilty about, I take it seriously, and I take it personally. That's why in Scripture, God says everyone's going to give an account to me, to me, because God takes it personally. In fact, look at this great passage of scripture that helps us to understand the character of God found in Exodus chapter 34 and uh, verses uh, 6 to 7 where God reveals himself to Moses and he says this, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands. Notice this language. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By the way, those three words are how the, the Old Testament describes our, our guilt. Guilt because of transgressing, trespassing. Guilt because of iniquity. That there's something within us that causes us to rebel against authority. We're broken within. That's what iniquity means. And then sin, failure to be what we ought to be in some way. Failure to do what we ought to do. But God says, but I can forgive all those things. But then notice what he says next. But who will by no means clear the guilty? You ought to underline that. 
Because God says he takes all real guilt seriously and personally. In fact, he goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, let me, I, I, we never... We never want to read this verse about God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation without explaining that. God is not saying that he will punish kids for their parents' sins. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 18, God explicitly says this is not true, that everyone pays for their own wrong. But what God is saying is that because I am a consistent God, I will continue generation after generation after generation to judge people for the same sins that they commit. I will be consistent at that point because God takes real guilt seriously. He doesn't let it slide. And the wrath of God, he is slow to anger, but the Bible says that we can know God's wrath. In fact, we read in Romans 5 that we were destined for wrath because of our guilt. And what is wrath? Well, it's the inevitable reaction of a righteous God toward all that's evil and wrong. God says, I'm going to take care of evil once and for all because God takes it seriously and personally. But notice that Seven times God refers to his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And he's slow to anger. You see, here's number two. God provides me lasting atonement. God, where he's revealing this about himself, and he says, I will, I will never clear the guilty person. He's talking to Moses, and he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a way of atonement because of your guilt. And the Old Testament began to teach about the day of atonement. Now, what does the word atonement mean? Well, simple way to understand it, it means to be at one with God. That instead of our sin standing between us and a holy and righteous God, that we're able to be one with him. And so the Bible, for example, in the book of Leviticus begins to teach us about, about the, uh, the day of atonement. Yom Kippur is what the Jews call that. And God says that he is going on this day to make atonement for his people. In fact, notice... He, he begins to set up this elaborate system of sacrifices for the Jews that we will make. Leviticus 6, 7 says, in this way, the priest, notice, will make atonement for them before the Lord and they will be forgiven for any of the things that they, may, uh, that they did that made them guilty. Now God says there's an elaborate system of sacrifices that he's put in place that involves slaughtering animals and especially now by the way the religion of the Jews was not unique in the offering of animals as sacrifices other cultures did that but what was unique is that God said very clearly in Leviticus that the life of a creature is its blood and I want you to drain its blood and he had elaborate rituals that would be used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal to make atonement. And it's that sprinkled blood that God says will make atonement for them. And then they will be forgiven. And you had to bring an unblemished animal. That means you had to give the very best of what you had. It was expensive. It was costly. 
I mean, you know, imagine if God said, you got to bring as a sacrifice the, you know, the, the, the dog that you're breeding that has great cost, the very best of the pups, I want you to offer that one as a sacrifice. Imagine how shocking that would be to you. See, God intended to show that real guilt is a shocking thing. And I hear sometimes people say, but why, why did God have to make this so bloody? Why, why do we have to talk about the crudities of the, of the cross and blood and suffering and dying? And, and all I want to say to you, friends, is that God knows what it takes to make atonement for our guilt. I, I will tell you that I've noticed that usually drama is required to heal trauma. And in an incredible drama, the book of Hebrews tells us that all of the day of atonement and all the sacrifices, all the blood ever shed was a shadow of what would be done when Christ came. And Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, see the tabernacle is where the priest in the Old Testament performed these sacrifices and, and on the day of atonement went into the presence of God, bringing blood as a way to show that, that atonement now had been done by, by the blood of a lamb. And so what he's saying is Christ came to a more perfect tabernacle. He entered the most holy place once for all time. He's talking about heaven itself. Not by the blood of goats and calves of sacrifices from animals, but by his own blood. And I want to say his blood shed on a cross where Jesus became the sacrifice for us. He became the Lamb of God who carries away the sin of the world. By his own blood, he's obtained eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? See, you and I have a dead conscience, my friend. That's why it isn't really reliable all the time. But God says our consciences can be cleansed because of this atonement of Christ. You see, Jesus' death became the way that the righteous God's wrath against all evil and wrong could be taken away and could be absorbed by Christ. And the greatest injustice in history, Jesus of Nazareth, who never deserved death, through a conspiracy of jealousy and wickedness, was delivered up to a cross, and in his death, God says, he brings about atonement for us and redemption for us. Now, you know, there's, there's, when we talk about atonement and God giving lasting atonement, there's three words you see uh, that I want to show you here. If you've printed out an outline, they're listed there that are involved in this whole idea of atonement. Three words. The first is the word substitution. And the thing that happened when you offered an animal is you would lay your hands on that animal because it was a way of you identifying yourself with that animal and with your iniquity and your transgression and your sin. And that animal now becomes the substitute for your sins. In the same way Christ, the Bible says, carried our sins on himself when he went to the cross. And in Isaiah 53, it tells us that Jesus was 
pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgression. The punishment that could bring us peace was upon him. You see, he was our substitute. And then there's the word expiation. Now these are kind of theological gobbledygook, but it's worth kind of explaining because these are all wrapped up in the idea of atonement. First, the substitution. Second is expiation. And expiation means to remove something, to blot it out, to carry it away once and for all. You know, this is what bomb squads do when they find a, a bomb. They take it away to another place where it can't explode and hurt people. Expiation happens for us every Tuesday when City of Fresno garbage trucks come by and pick up our garbage and they take it away. That's what expiation means. That Christ took away the sins of the world. And then propitiation. That's a, that's a mouthful. And what that word means is it basically means to satisfy someone or something, to extinguish their anger, to appease them, to be able to be at peace with them now because things have been paid up. Now, this is the idea of what Christ did for us. Notice Romans 3, 22 to 25 says this, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and they're justified, notice this, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith. Now I want you to notice here doesn't say that Christians have made Jesus the atonement. It says God presented him as the atonement. You see, the eternal God presented Jesus Christ as the way that he could bring guilty people to himself because he will never clear the guilty in any other way. That's why, friend, my only hope of ever being in heaven is not because of good things that I do, but it's because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. And someday when I stand to have to give account to God, the only thing I could say is, my king died in my place. And God says, that's exactly why he presented Christ for us. First John 2, 2 says this, that he himself, you see, God takes guilt seriously and personally and that's why God personally came in Christ to deal with our sin he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world you know there's a prop, pop singer named Rachel Platten who has a song called Begin Again and she talks about guilt in it and wreckage. And here's what, here's what she says. I need a wrecking ball. I want the sky to fall. I feel so small tonight. Talking about her guilt. I need a tidal wave. I need a tidal wave to come and wash all the mess I've made to make it right. I need to make it right. And friends, I want to say to you that in Jesus Christ, God sent a tidal wave of mercy and grace and forgiveness meant to set you free. In fact, one of the sisters in our church shared a story recently that we, we just want to share with you. Listen, listen to how she dealt with guilt 
in her own life. Watch this. It was the summer after graduating high school. I was barely 18 years old, with the whole world at my fingertips. I didn't know Jesus then, and here I was, pregnant. I thought it would never happen to me. Looking back, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. I made a decision that I felt was easiest at the time. Abortion. To keep my mistakes a secret from those who knew and loved me. But it wasn't easiest. I wish I had known then. I wish I knew Jesus then. I blocked out that time of my life and tried to move on. Thinking about that decision I made was too hurtful. I held that secret close to me and lived life with many walls up for years in fear of judgment. How could others forgive me and love me if they knew? Until I met Jesus and found myself on a mission trip, I felt like an imposter. I had this terrible secret and didn't deserve to be across the country with these amazing people. We returned home and I felt so heavy and full of grief. The weight of that darkness consumed me and I fell deeper into a pit of despair. But God knew I needed to finally face what I had been holding on to for the past 17 years. I fell at his feet, asking for forgiveness for this horrible mistake that I wish I could take back. He heard my cries and set my feet in motion to complete healing and gave me hope. As the psalm says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. In being able to now share my story, I've learned that others would not judge me. However, it took a long time for me not to judge myself. I see my children today and sometimes think about what you would be doing if you were here with us, and it still causes some pain. But God reminds me of his forgiveness. I also learned after sharing my story that many other women close to me have a similar story. I had no idea that I was not alone. We have a common understanding of the hurt and regret, but also of God's good and undeserving grace. Satan had told me lies for years that I believed. He kept me closed off, judged and outcast, unable to fully share my life with others out of guilt and shame. But when God gave me the courage to share, he also gave me his forgiveness, not the judgment I thought I deserved. I learned that Jesus took that punishment for me on the cross once and for all, and for that, I am so thankful. Satan no longer has a hold on me. God says who I am. I am loved and forgiven, and I believe him. Wow, what a powerful, powerful message. You see, friends, the tidal wave of mercy and grace and forgiveness was given at the cross of Christ. That's why number three, write this down. God wants me to stop carrying guilt needlessly. Yes, God made us to be able to feel guilt so it would turn us to him and turn us away 
so that we'd learn from the wrongs that we've done. But God doesn't want us to live under the load of sin and guilt. That's why he made a way of atonement for us. God says, I want you to leave your sin and your guilt at the foot of the cross and live freely. Now friends, that is where the miracle of grace and mercy has met millions of people and there's room there for you as well. I love how Dane Ortland, uh, a young theologian today, says Jesus walked the earth rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. His heart refused to let him sleep in. So wherever he went, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. And I want to say to you, his mercy is for you today. If you'll stop hiding, you'll stop denying, and you just come into the light with your failure. In fact, look what 1 John 1, 7 and 9 tells us in the Bible. If we, if we walk into the light, if we walk in the light of God's presence with the darkness in our lives, we will have fellowship with one another, with him, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, I think this verse is great because it talks about both the objective and the subjective experience of guilt. His blood, his atoning sacrifice takes care of my objective guilt and his blood purifies me. If, I claim that we if we claim we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Who are you kidding that you're without sin? But if we confess, then he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and he's able to purify our consciences from all unrighteousness. Now friends, listen. The Holy Spirit can take you to that sacred ground today, standing at the foot of the cross to experience that cleansing. Hebrews 8:12 God says this, "I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins." And here's what I want to say to you. If the righteous eternal God says there's no need to bring it up again, to remember it again. And why do you think you still have to do something to, to pay for it, to make up for it, to try to somehow add to the atoning work that Christ has done? The author Irwin Lutcher tells about a missionary friend who was in India and he befriended a Hindu man there who uh, was in the pearl business and uh, and uh, he and his family, they, would, they were pearl divers that would go down the deep parts of the ocean to get oysters and, and uh, get, uh, retrieve pearls from them. And, and as he tried to share the good news about Christ, this Hindu man said, it just doesn't make sense that God would freely forgive me. Why, I, I could never pay off my bad karma if I walked all the way across India on my knees. It can't be free. Well, despite the fact that these two had very different religious viewpoints, this missionary became a very close friend of this man. And when it came time for the missionary to, go, to leave for a year on furlough, his, his friend from India gave him a gift. It was the most beautiful pearl, the largest pearl he'd ever seen in his life. In fact, it was a pearl that his son had retrieved on a day that he lost his life, 
retrieving that pearl from the bottoms of the ocean. And when he gave it to the missionary, the missionary, his response was, my goodness, I, I could never just accept this. L let me pay you for it. Well, you see, in that culture, that gift, that, that was offensive to him. And he pointed that out. How could you pay for something that cost my son's life? And suddenly, it dawned on him what the truth of the gospel is. That God's grace is free because it was costly to Christ. Now, friends, if God says, your guilt is atoned for, what more is there for you to pay? In fact, I just want to ask you, how long do you keep fretting over a bill that's been paid? Drop it. And then finally, number four, write this down quickly and we'll be wrapping this up. Boasting in the cross is my real remedy. It really is my remedy that the cross of Jesus with its transforming power can take away my guilt. And in the cross of Jesus, I find the love of God expressed to me in an incredible way. And so the cross becomes my boast that God accepted Jesus' death there as my atonement. And there's three things that I mean here about boasting in the cross. Write these quick and we're done. First is basing my standing in God's promises. You see, God has promised to me. In fact, Romans chapter 5 that we read says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus through whom we've gained access into this grace in which we now stand. God says, I'm forgiven for good. I'm pardoned by God. Not, I'm not on parole. And God says, I now have standing with him as if I had never committed a single sin. And friend, I want to say to you that if Jesus' atonement can't cover your sin, if it's not enough, then he died for no reason. But he died to give you standing with God. And I base my standing in God's promise. Second, I'm, and here's, here's an idea. I'm basting my conscience in God's approval. You see, the problem is my conscience. My conscience is twisted and broken and dead. And I need it to be made alive. And it's only God's grace, his forgiveness, his approval that can set my conscience free. And you're familiar with what basting means. This is a cooking term. And, and it's kind of like, you know, at, at, at Thanksgiving, you know, when we baste a turkey, you know, we're wanting to make sure that all the juices get cooked into it so that it tastes good and the right kind of color is there and so forth. And what I'm saying is that my subjective feelings need to fall in line with the truth of what God has said that he's done for me. And I allow that truth, God's approval, to be basting my conscience. Look at this great passage. Romans 8 says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. Zip. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. In fact, I want you to read that out loud with me, sitting wherever you are, with whoever you're with, read that statement again with me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you let the truth of that marinate into your heart? 
What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies them. Who then is he who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can you let that marinate over your conscience and your heart? For I'm convinced that neither death or life or angels or demons or the present or the future or any powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I, I, this made me think, there's one more little point I want to give you here because I was thinking about basting and I don't know if you ever remember that old TV show called Seinfeld and I remember there was an episode where, where Kramer's trying to get a suntan and Jerry Seinfeld sees him and it's right around Thanksgiving time and it kind of reminds him of, of, you know, of Seinfeld being like on a spit, like he's, he's being He's being turned and, and because he's trying to, to get a, a tan. And, and I want to say to you that there's one more little point I'll make here. And that is that we need to be basking in my Savior's love for me. That's what it means to boast in the cross. You know, today's a baptism day at North Point. In fact, what a great day for you to come be baptized. We're going to be doing it right after the 11 o'clock service sometime around 12.15, 12.30. And this time of year, honestly, I'm embarrassed when I dress out to help with baptism because my legs are white. I mean, you look at me and you almost need to have sunglasses on. I mean, it's obvious I'm a white guy when you see how white my legs are. <laughs> the problem is all winter I've been in and out of the sun. And, and, uh, and we know how good it feels to be able to start basking in the sun. In fact, doctors tell us that actually we get vitamin D from being out in the sun, that it actually lifts our mood. In fact, God has made our bodies such that our skin produces that melanin to protect the sun from damaging our cells, and that's what gives us that nice tan. Now, how do you keep a good tan? You got to bask in the sun, you got to get out and get exposed to the sun. It's as if our bodies were made to be in sunlight. And, friend, I want to tell you, you were made for the love of God. You were made to know the love of a Savior. You were made to be the object of his love and to love him back. And when you bask in that love, it begins to heal your conscience. Have you come to the cross? Have you come to this place that God has created and made to be your atoning place, the place where you could know his love and his mercy toward you. Would you open your heart to Christ right now? Just say these words to him. Just say, Jesus Christ, how I need your forgiveness and mercy. Make peace with my past through your blood. Give me this eternal relationship with God that I need and begin to lead me. Help me to live my life in the sunlight of your love. I turn from myself, I turn from my own ways, and I turn to you and will follow you. My goodness, if you'll say that to him, everything will change for you, my friend. This is the remedy 
that you need.